All right, friends, if we could, let's go ahead and get started this morning. If you are new and visiting us this morning, I'm going to go ahead and get this out of the way. I am not Mitch Mayer. Um, Mitch is out of town this week. He's up at uh, Canacuck uh, teaching one of his series to them, which he does quite often, and it's always a great time for him, and I know he enjoys being there. Um, but my name is Joey Payro. Uh, my wife, Jenny, and I have been here at Redeemer since around 2010, and uh, we've had and are raising both of our kids, Claire, who will be 10 in October, and Keaton, who turned 8 in April, uh, here at Redeemer. Redeemer is all they know. This is home, and this is home for us, too. Um, over the last four years, or going on four years now, if you guys have given myself and, and Mitch and Matt the privilege of serving you as elders. And I just wanted to take a second this morning uh, outside of the, the sermon to just say first, thank you. Um, it's a tremendous uh, privilege to serve Redeemer in that way. And some of you are probably going, I didn't know you were an elder. And some of you guys are going, I didn't know we had elders. And some of you guys might be asking what we do. And uh, just real quick, you know, we, we meet every other week and we talk about a range of things that are going on here at Redeemer. Um, we look at budgets and, and do other stuff. But the one thing and the reason I want to bring this up today, the, the one thing we do, and I think it goes for myself and Mitch and Matt and probably anybody that served here at Redeemer as an elder. The, the one thing we do every week is we pray for our congregation, whether it's prayer requests or things that people have told us that we know about. Um, or just the church in general. Uh, and so I wanted you guys to know that, just to know, first, that we're praying for y'all, but secondly, the most impactful thing I feel like we do as an elder team is pray with people at our church who are going through things. That could be sickness, that could be life circumstances. Um, I just want to invite you all, if you're going through something, whether it be sickness, whether it be a, a trying time in life, please let us know. Come find myself, Mitch or Matt, um, and we would love to just take that first part of our meeting and sit down and pray for y'all. I can't tell y'all the impact that's had on our team, uh, just talking to folks that we've been able to do that with. Um, so I just, I want to put that out there uh, for all of you guys. Several weeks back, I got a text from Pastor Mitch, and uh, like most, I keep my phone in preview mode, so I look down real quick, and I was kind of reading the text first. And it started out, I said, hey, would you be able to preach on September 10th? And so I got to thinking, I was like, all right, that's four or five weeks away. Okay, part one, I can do that. And then he says, this, you know, the second part was uh, the, the Pharisee and the publican. And so the next thing I did was pull out my phone and Googled, what is a publican? And uh, <laughs> the funny part about that is I've talked about this to several others, like, I didn't know what a publican was either. So I felt, I felt a lot better. Um, but after looking into the text, I'm just really excited to be able to share with you guys this morning. I, I got home that first night after saying yes, and I fell asleep and woke up at like 2.30. And you know what the early morning will do to you. I got to thinking about it. I got pretty nervous. I was like, oh, man. So I got up. I went in the living room. I sat down. And I got my Bible out. And I just read the verse, you know, the verses over and over. And I prayed. And I read the verses over and over and prayed a little more. And then I got a notebook out, and I started just kind of writing down some notes. And, and a few minutes in, I'm going to be honest, I was feeling pretty good about things. I was like, oh, man, getting some stuff laid out. And I even had like a, a title to the sermon. You know, it was two people, two prayers, and, and two hearts. And I felt pretty good about that. And uh, so I'm, like, I'm going to go ahead and go to bed. So I went back to bed. And the next day, I, I thought, well, you know, probably ought to listen to some other sermons that other guys are preaching about this and see what they have to say and, and, and start getting some more thoughts together. And 
I Google the, the verse and like seven videos pop up in the preview and six of the seven had the exact same title that I had just come up with. And so <laughs> I wasn't feeling quite as smart after that. But um, I'll, I'll say this, and I shared this with, with some other folks this week as well. Um, just in this process, we are so lucky to have the resources we have, uh, whether online or through different uh, softwares, the, the, the sermons that we can access and listen to. And I listened to several um, from guys that I really like and admire. Um, and it was tough, too, because they, they take this and, and, and they all go different places with it. Uh, I think MacArthur preached like six weeks on this one verse. And then, you know, the, 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 the one that I just I love so much, Alistair Begg had a sermon as well. Uh, if you guys want to follow up at all to this, I would encourage you to listen to his sermon on Luke 18, 9 through 14. It was wonderful. Um, to the point where I thought, like, you know, I could just send Hank the link to that video, walk up, cue it up, and then just walk right back off, and, and we'd be good. But no, I'm not going to do that this morning. Three things before I get started that I wanted to point out, just some things that I've learned or have really stuck out to me over these last few weeks. And Pastor Mitch has said this as he talks about this series on parables, but there's so much wonderful spiritual truth for us to pull out of these parables. Um, again, I think somebody could take this, this particular text and, and write 50 wonderful sermons on different things, all from this one text. Um, and, and Pastor Mitch has said this as well. These are earthly stories with spiritual meaning. Um, and that meaning is, is for us. I think we can hear the parable and we, it's in the context of way back and, and we don't really take that to heart. But I think it's super important for us to know that these stories are for us. They're relevant for us today. And the last one, I think, and, and I've been incredibly convicted over these last several weeks, is that we approach these parables with great humility. Um, my heart has been so convicted, so much of, of what I've read. And so I think just as an encouragement to us all, that as we, as we continue on the series, that we, we listen with hearts of humility to hear not just the story that was, that was told way back when, but to hear what it means and where it can be used today. All right, so real quick where we're going this morning. I want us to read this text together. We're going to look through it. I'm going to ask and answer five questions uh, from our text. And then we're going to finish with about four points of application. So let's read our text together. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, let's pray together and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for these parables, these earthly stories with heavenly or spiritual meaning. Lord, I pray that as we spend this time together, that we'll receive this word with humility. Lord, help me to share it clearly. 
Lord, let it penetrate our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. The Lord was really gracious to me and to all of us in this parable that he wastes no time in telling us what this parable is about. This, this parable is a warning about self-righteousness. And we see that right away in verse 9. Let's look at it. Verse 9, and he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. This is a group of Pharisees that he's addressing. And if we really just kind of close our eyes, you can see the scene. I mean, here's Jesus surrounded by a group of Pharisees who all think they are 100% fine. They've got it all figured out. They have no religious need from Jesus at all. Yet we know that puts them at odds with Jesus' teaching. And we also know that being at odds with Jesus is what Pharisees did best. Jesus' earthly ministry at the time revolved, not not at the time, his earthly ministry revolved around him being the only way to the Father. Yet he's sitting in front of a group of Pharisees who are still trusting in the law for righteousness. They believed they could earn their righteousness, that they could be made right with God strictly by following the law. Yet here Jesus was calling him to himself. And he, he took this opportunity to identify with this group of Pharisees, which I think this is so funny, and as I've read it, it just kind of tickles me. But he took this, 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 uh, this opportunity to, to identify with them by telling them a story about them. And he couldn't have been really more clear about it. In verse 10, Jesus begins his parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So we see right away our setting for this story is the temple. And the temple was a central religious location uh, for the time. Twice daily, once in the morning and once in the evening, uh, people would come to pray and offer sacrifices at the temple. And as the scene lays out, this would have been so incredibly common for this group of people that he was talking to, to this group of Pharisees. We're then introduced to our two main characters. And I'll have a lot more to say about both of these guys as we get into it. But for now, I really just want to focus on what the, what the people that Jesus was speaking to would have thought about them both. And so first, the Pharisee. For us today, we immediately have a negative connotation of the Pharisee. We've, we've read this story, we've been in Sunday schools, or we've heard all the other stories. Um, that wouldn't have been the case for the people that Jesus was talking to. For this guy, going to the temple would have been a, would have been a normal daily occurrence. He was viewed as the religious elite. He would have been the supreme keeper of the law at the time. And then we have this tax collector. He was a crook, a collaborator. He's a Jewish man who works for the Roman authorities collecting taxes for Rome. He would have been viewed at the time as a traitor. He collected taxes for Rome and he lined his own pockets with the extra money he collected. He didn't get a salary from Rome, right? So he's collecting taxes and everything he took above and beyond he put in his pocket. He would have been viewed as the lowest of the low. So my point really here being is that these two men that we're talking about. They couldn't have been further apart on the social or the religious ladder. And if we were running a poll, if Jesus would have asked all the people he was talking to, which of these men were righteous, 100% would have said our Pharisee. And this brings us to our first question, and that is, what is self-righteousness? So if Jesus was teaching that righteousness could only be achieved through relationship with him, 
then self-righteousness then would be the idea that we can be made right with God through our actions, our works, or through strict adherence to the law. And this is exactly what the Pharisees would have believed. They're still under the law, and they went to great lengths to make sure that they did everything by the book. And our second question, so what does self-righteousness look like? In our text, it wastes no time showing us what that is. And we see the self-righteousness of this Pharisee immediately in his prayer. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. So the idea here, we have this Pharisee who goes to the temple, and he would have made his way up to the front, as close to the holiest place as he could. He would have been standing, eyes raised to heaven, hands up, um, facing, facing the uh, heavens. He had positioned himself in such a way as to draw the maximum attention to himself. He was going to be seen. We find out quickly this was, this was a prayer very much more about himself than very little about God. We're still in verse 11. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, crooked, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And if we're being super honest, if the Pharisee would have stopped after the first four words, that would have been a lot better off for him, right? It was really the only, you know, God, I thank you, was really the only part of this prayer that could have been mistaken as a prayer. And as we look at this prayer, we see the Pharisee shows his self-righteousness in at least three different ways. The first, he's practicing a negative obedience. You see, God, I thank you that I'm not like. And he goes on to rattle all these other sins that apply to everybody else, but, but not to him. He's not a swindler. He's not crooked. He's not an adulterer. He's far more concerned with the sins that he's not committed than he is the sins he has. The second is comparison to others. I'm not like other people, people or even this tax collector. And as I thought about this, just an illustration, I, you know, for any of us that have played sports or you've been involved in band or any other kind of group activity, the school season ends and the summer comes and you have that last kind of meeting before the summer and the coach or band director or whoever is talking to the team or he's, hey, we got to keep at it this summer, guys. we got to stay in shape. we got to do all the stuff. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, exactly. And the summer hits, and everybody reports back. And you know, all, that's, all that's well and good until camp starts, right? And so I can just see, like, little Jimmy. He shows back up to the training room. And coach says, Jimmy, how would you do this summer? Oh, coach, I was at it. Man, I worked hard. Did a bunch. Oh, man, great, great, great. Coach, I don't know about these guys, though. What do you mean? This other group, I'm not sure they put it in. They're looking a little fluffy around the middle. <laughs> Comparing himself to others. And, and, and that works up until about the time the coach says, all right, let's go get on the scale. And he stands on that scale, and he's about 12 pounds heavier than when he left. And then it's time to go run the 40, and he's about a second slower. And it's time to hit a bench press, and he's, you know, seven or eight reps less than when the summer started. It's much easier for us to compare other, to ourselves to others than it is to really look into our own hearts. And our third point uh, for this Pharisee is he's pointing to his religious rituals as a way for him to earn favor with God. Still in verse 12, he says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. 
And this idea of fasting twice a week, you know, the Pharisees were required to fast once a, once a year at the Day of Atonement. Yet the Pharisees would do it often more and more and more. And it, and it wasn't so much for God as it was to bring attention to themselves. And he says, I pay tithes of all that I get. And again, he's boasting of surpassing these requirements of the law. Uh, he's only required to pay tithes on his corn, his oil, and his cattle. Yet he paid tithes on all that he possessed. And both of these comments only go on to show the Pharisees' commitment to continue to go above and beyond what the law was, was required. And he, he might have been thinking he was praying to the Lord, but he was really only praying to himself. In his own mind, he was a picture of religious perfection. So we've defined self-righteousness and, and we've seen what it looks like. And our third question is this, what's the opposite of self-righteousness? So if self-righteousness is the idea that we can do it all on our own, the opposite of this would be total dependence on someone else. And so one side says, I've, I've got it all figured out. I can take care of it. And then the other side says, I, I can't do this on my own. I need, I need your help. So two characteristics of total dependence, and, and I've seen this as, we've, as I've read this text, that it seemed to play out is one of humility and one of faith. So what does, our fourth question, what does total dependence look like? And I think in the tax collector, we see both this humility and this faith in his prayer. So verse 13, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I can't help but focus on the first part, but the tax collector. And I think so often in Scripture we see this conjunction, but, used before we have this big contrast between two points. And that's definitely the case here. But before we heap too much praise on our tax collector, I want to just remind you guys of who we're talking about. He was a crook, a collaborator with the Romans. His entire livelihood depend, depended on what he stole for, from his friends and gave back to the Roman government. Every bit of wealth he had came directly from the pockets of fellow Jews. He was the lowest of the low, viewed in that day in the same way as murderers, thieves, and prostitutes. And it's unlikely that even his own mother would have claimed him in public. And for all you mamas out there, you know that it's bad when mama doesn't want to claim you in public. But in the tax collector's humility, he knew that he had come to the end of himself. Verse 13, standing some distance away, he was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven. And again, let's contrast this with our Pharisee. The Pharisee walks up and he's going to go to the prom spot and make sure that he's seen. And look at me, eyes up to the heavens, hands up to the heavens. And here we see our tax collector. He's on the outskirts. He wasn't interested in being seen. It was actually quite the opposite. He was probably trying hard not to be seen. If he would have walked into Redeemer, he'd be back over here in this corner, sitting by himself. I have to imagine as well that in this moment, the tax collector was probably just as surprised to be at the temple as the Pharisees and others would have been to see him there. The tax collector, so overcome with the sin, he couldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. And as I've read this text over and over, 
And this is one of those open-ended things. Like, I don't, I don't have anything behind this, this comment. But as I've read this text over and over, I can't help but find myself wondering what it was that drew him to the temple that day. It's interesting to think about. Our fifth question is, then what is the cure to the self-righteousness? And I think the answer, at least for us to this, in, this, in this parable, is it's a true understanding of who we are before a holy God. I think it's, it's coming to the realization that he's God and we're not, realizing that there's nothing that we can do to earn our righteousness. When he came to the temple that day, our tax collector, he, he, he knew he didn't belong. He knew what the others would have been thinking about him. He knew what they would say. And I think he knew he had nothing to offer them, but he, he came anyway. And at the end of verse 13, but the tax collector beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He, he had enough faith, he had enough humility to, to, to go, but also to sit and ask God for mercy. Translated, God, God propitiate me. God, don't, don't give me the punishment that I deserve. It was the punishment that he, that he knew he deserved, but he had understood the cost of his sin. He's no longer looking to himself for reconciliation. He's looking to God. And in verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself would be exalted. This response would have been absolutely shocking to this group of Pharisees that Jesus is talking to. I can just hear him, wait, no, 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 the Pharisee, he's, he's perfect. He's the, you see all that he's done? He's got to be the one that's righteous. The Pharisee got it wrong. He still thinks he's fine and he's got it all figured out on his own. He didn't need God. Shoot, God needed him. Look at all he had done. He had done it all right. Yet the tax collector is the one that got it right. He realized he had nothing to offer. He asked God for mercy. He acknowledges his sin. He realized he couldn't pay the price of his sin on his own. The Apostle Paul had a similar experience. Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me. It's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, the persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. 
that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, be conformed to his death in order that I may attain, my, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's a good word, isn't it? I said at the beginning that these parables were stories from the past that were meant from us today. And many of you know I have an incredibly talented wife. And I ask a favor of her as I prepared this. And I ask her, I said, if you would, not, not, not to rewrite the text, but let's, I'd, lo- I'd love to get your view on what this might look like for us today. So if you guys would, hang with me for a minute. Two men step into a church. The first man, John, enters confidently as he's entering the boardroom to close a deal that's already a slam dunk. He's immediately recognized, handshakes all around, completely at ease. After all, this is pretty much his turf. He's been about the business of church since he was a kid. The entry of our second man, Jim, couldn't have been more different, still heavy-headed from a long night of drowning his burdens and a bottle of scotch. He hesitates to even walk in the front door, wondering, is it possible that sirens could go off when he steps inside? Center alert, center alert. What if they threw him out? The churches do that kind of thing, but he's desperate. Eyes down, shoulders slightly slumped, he shuffles inside. Both men make their way to the sanctuary. Flashing a smile and shaking hands, John meanders his way up the aisle, delighting in being known. Man, it's good to be in the house of the Lord, he sighs as he spies a seat up front. No need for John to rush. Everyone knows that's where his family sits. In fact, John contributed heavily from his own pocket to the funding of the financial campaign for all the new chairs. His seat is practically reserved. Meanwhile, Jim bypasses the coffee and the handshakes. The only thing he's confident about is that he's desperate to get inside the sanctuary doors. Easy down, or eyes down, he slips in the back, finding a seat just inside. As the service begin, John takes a long look around, making sure he's made all the necessary connections this morning. When you serve the way John serves, Sunday morning takes a lot of effort, and John knows how to put forth a good effort. In fact, his wife is in the back serving with the kids right now. Man, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Many rows back with his head in his hands, Jim is undone. His life a mess. Professionally, he's doing well from all appearances. Has all the things money can buy, even far beyond what's needed to pay for the child support from his failed marriages. But finances are where apparent prosperity ends. He's built a successful business through backdoor deals and clawing his way to the top, only only to find that the top he had been reaching for was on a desolate and empty island. Now the burdens of guilt and sin were so heavy and crushing he could lift no more. Weeping with his head in his hands, he cries out to the Lord, God, help me. I don't deserve it, but I'm asking for mercy of my sins. Meanwhile, many rose up. John turns around and a sound from the back. Was that a cry? Oh, it was that guy, Jim. I saw him when he came in. He'd heard about Jim. What was he doing here? His life is so messed up. He's probably never cracked a Bible in his life. John holds his latest thick ESV Reformation Study Bible and begins to pray, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that guy. And he begins to think about how he goes to Bible study weekly. He listens to sermons on his commute, has made sure he brought flowers home for all 24 anniversaries, and gives above the standard 10%. He even funded the tricked-out coffee bar. In fact, 
back to that guy, Jim. He's apparently done pretty well financially himself. Maybe I can grab him after the service and see if he'd be willing to contribute to the building fund. Man, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. In the back, Jim's tears began to dry and the ugliness and rotten sin of his life lost their weight in the shadow of the cross and the blood of Jesus. At that moment, Jim knew he had been, he had been given a new life through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. If Jesus used a parable about a self-righteous Pharisee to reach a group of self-righteous Pharisees, I wonder what he's trying to teach us today. And I think the truth is we can all fall into this self-righteous trap. So how do we guard our hearts from self-righteousness? So here are just a few things to consider. And, And I said earlier, there's so many ways to take this, but here's four. I think we need to realize the content of our prayers points directly towards our dependence on God. You've heard Pastor Mitch talk about the Acts prayer. Well, the, the Pharisees' prayer was hardly in the style of the Acts prayer. As I said earlier, if he would have stopped after the first four words, he would have got it right. But this idea of, of, of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplica- supplication, God, we, ad- we adore you for your power and your righteousness. God, I I come to you and I confess, Lord, I've not been living the way I should. God, thank you for your provision for my family. Lord, help me. Lord, help me live a life that serves and honors you. It's a wonderful prayer tool because all four of these point back to God. I mean, the Pharisee used his prayer to tell God that he was fine. He had it all figured out. The tax collector prayed for mercy and confessed his sin. So friends, let's pray like the tax collector. Let's come to God with humble hearts, with hearts of confession, not pointing to ourselves, but pointing to God, not our own works, but his. The second, our religious activity cannot make us righteous. Now this is, this is countercultural. We've been told our whole life that if we want something, we need to do it. We need to work at it. We've been trained from an early age to be doers. The Pharisee thought that way. He thought he was doing enough to earn his righteousness. I fast twice a week. I give of all that I get. He's checking each and every box, stacking good work on top of good work. The truth is we can fall into that same trap. I serve in RSM and RKM. I attend every men's event. I stay late and help set, up, help set up tables and move chairs. I give more than most. I know I give more than so-and-so over here. I do my quiet times daily. I read my Bible. Now, listen, hear me. These, these are all good things, much like Pastor Mitch said last week. These are all good things. Serving in RKM is good. Serving in RSM is good. Katie and Craig are saying amen out there somewhere. Being in the church every time the door is open, it's good. Reading our Bible is good. But they will not get you into heaven. The heart of our service to God, the church, and others, it comes comes through our faith. Our faith leads to works. It's our, our process of sanctification. It's not the other way around. The third is that we guard our hearts against self righteousness creeping in by searching our heart. This is, if you guys have uh, heard me talk or 
visit here lately. I, my grandmother passed away three or four years ago now. And she was wonderful, just wonderful. Servant of the Lord, humble. From the outside, you would just look at her like she was the perfect grandmother. When she passed, we had gone over to her house. She had a table in her den, and over here there was this one blue chair. All the other chairs were brown, and she had this one aqua blue chair that she sat in and did her Bible study. And as we looked through some of her things, I found this. Um, probably something that she got sent in the mail with her P.O. box number address on the bottom, but she kept it. And at the very top, Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. For me, I think of her and just how wonderful. And I, I can't imagine this woman sinning at all. This was sitting on top of her Bible. And so I have to think, and, and maybe I'm putting this in here, but I have to think that this was something she looked at every day. And so at this point in her life, decades of serving the Lord, I, I tend to believe that each morning she, she read this. She was searching her heart, asking God to let her know if there was anything in her that needed to change, asking God daily to show us the places in our hearts that we might be holding back and that we need to surrender to him. In the fourth, as I start working towards our close, let's be very careful of how we think about others, about ourselves, and about God. The start of our parable has haunted me as I've prepared this sermon. Um, Here's Jesus confronted with a group of, I have to assume, likely hostile Pharisees. He didn't depart. Let's look at verse 9 together. And when Jesus saw that the crowd was self-righteous and viewed others with contempt, he got angry, frustrated, packed his stuff, and moved on to another city. That's not, that's not what we see. We see Jesus stayed. It's so easy in the world we live in, the, the, the sin and all that's around us, to look and go, oh, and then we depart. That's not what Jesus did here. Let's look at what he didn't do. He, he didn't stay and, and affirm and validate and celebrate this Pharisees in, in the sin that they were in. What he did do is he spoke truth and he confronted their sinful hearts in a way that was pointing them back to himself. Friends, we live in a world where people need to hear the gospel and they need for us to stay. And it's hard. Be careful what we think about ourselves. I think we have more in common with both the Pharisee and the tax collector than we would like to admit. We can get caught up making sure everything on the outside looks good, that we're doing things for God, but yet we're thinking of God very little, hoping that others don't see the mess that's inside. We can also forget that we were all once just like this tax collector. There was a day when confronted by our own sin, 
we were propelled to the feet of Jesus. You, you might have been a young child, and this was a conversation you had with your mom or dad, and you, and you may not remember much of it. Um, you might have been older and maybe wayward, and this was, a, this was a monumental time. You can think back and remember everything about it. So I asked you, do you remember that day? Do you remember what it felt like, what you were thinking? I, I do. I was, a, I was a college kid who was sitting in my, my apartment, and everything around me had just, just gone to mess, and it was bad. And uh, I remember some friends that came, and, and hey, we're going to go to this FCA meeting. And I remember walking in the FCA meeting, and I, and I probably felt a lot like the tax collector, <laughs> if I'm being honest. I had to think that there were probably people that were like, oh, man, what is, what is he doing here? I've related to him a lot through this last several weeks. The bottom line is that because of what Christ has done for each and every one of us who believe that there is no room for self-righteousness in the heart of a believer. And lastly, how we think about God. God's the only one righteous. We come to believe and the righteousness of Christ is then imputed to us. It's it's given to us. It's credited to us. This Pharisee was trying to earn it, and the tax collector simply asked God for mercy, and in that moment, he was justified. The righteousness of Christ was credited to his account, not by anything he had done. He had, from the outside, look, he'd done nothing. But it was given to him by faith alone. And I'll start closing with this we can't do it on our own so this morning I ask you are you, are you like the Pharisee you spinning your wheels trying to earn God's approval trying to do one more good thing than bad keeping a tally hoping that at the end the good works surpass the bad you can't do it we weren't created to believe in ourselves And the fact of the matter is simply there's not enough good in me or you or in any of us to overcome the weight of our sin. Maybe you're like the tax collector. Something stirred in your heart and you found yourself walking into these church doors. You don't know exactly what it is, but here you sit. Your past is weighing you down this fearfulness of the future of what's to come. And friends, either way, the the, the prayer is the same. It's the prayer the tax collector prayed. God, have mercy on me. Lord, don't give me what I deserve. The answer to self-righteousness is the gospel of Jesus. We see here in Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 10, for we we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in him. Let me go back a little bit, read read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. 
You were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we may walk in them. This salvation is a gift. God takes us from death to life, not for anything we've done, but through faith alone in Jesus. See, both, both men were dead. The Pharisee was dead in his self-righteousness. The tax collector was dead in his sin. However, the tax collector went home justified. He asked God for mercy. end with this and a good friend shared this with me as we were looking over this text 2nd Corinthians 5 verse 21 he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him he shared that with me he said man this is I call it the great exchange and it fits so well uh, for, for this passage we, we give him our sin, and we get his righteousness. Friends, I don't know where you are today. I don't know where you fit in what, what we've talked about, where your heart is. But I do pray that if you find yourself like that tax collector, I pray that you'll consider praying that same prayer that he prayed, asking God for mercy. If there's anything that we can do here at Redeemer to help you with that, I wish you'd please let us know. Friends, thank you. I'd like to pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your son. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you that there's nothing in us that's good enough to earn your salvation. Lord, you give that to us as a free gift. And so, Lord, for anyone here that may not know you, Lord, that may be trying to do it on their own, they're spinning these wheels, Lord, trying to, to earn your favor, God. Let them know. It's a simple prayer. Lord, what an amazing, amazing gift. Friends, thank you.